has accomplished, has done for sinners. It's important that we are able to understand that and articulate that. What, what has God saved us from and, and what has He saved us for? Those are the two main questions we're going to look at this morning from this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is God's holy Word. Let's listen attentively as it's read and as it's preached. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, "'And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we're going to end the reading of God's holy word there this morning. If someone were to ask you, what makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? I think many of us would probably respond and say, well, I'm a Christian because I've been saved. I've been saved. That word, saved, is, is a word that is central to the Christian vocabulary, isn't it? Uh, we use it a lot in the church. Even the youngest of our baptized members can pray, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And we all think we have a pretty good idea of what that means, to be saved. But what would you say if someone asked you a series of of deeper follow-up questions, maybe questions like this, what are you saved from? And what are you saved for? Well, those questions require a bit more mature biblical thought about the substance, the essence of the gospel, of the good news of what God in Christ has done for sinners like you and me. This morning, I want to explore, I, I want to rehearse the glorious gospel that Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God, from His judgment that will come soon upon the earth. But that He has not just saved us from wrath, but He has also saved us and freed us for something, to live for Him and to live for others. It's really only when we understand the gospel in that mature biblical way, when we can articulate it in a meaningful way, that we can say, I know what it means to be saved. 
And so the first question for us to consider this morning is, what are we saved from? Saved from what? Those of you who know me fairly well, you know that I enjoy, I get a real kick out of making old things look new again. Um, I, I find it very satisfying uh, to take something that's broken down and unkempt, dilapidated, and clean it up, uh, maybe paint it, uh, give it new life. I don't watch a lot of TV, um, especially now with two little children in the house, but when I can, I like to catch some of the old episodes of a show that some of you have probably seen, This Old House. I enjoy watching that show. It's a show, if you're not familiar with it, Uh, where expert craftsmen take an old broken-down house, still has good bones to it, and they restore it and they update it, they make it look brand new again, and I especially enjoy it at the end of a project, when they finished a, a renovation project, they show the before and the after photos, what it looked like before in its dilapidated condition and what it looks like now after all the work that's been done on it. And it's a drastic change that has occurred to that property. Well, in some ways, the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he calls us, he begs us to, to think about a before and an after snapshot of our lives. And he begins with the before in verses 1 through 3. He says, this is who you were, Christian. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul begins this section of his letter with a deadly diagnosis of the human condition. This is who you were. This is the before picture. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, let's be clear about our condition. He doesn't say you were were desperately sick. He doesn't say you you were on your deathbed. He does not say, to quote a popular movie, you were mostly dead. You were dead, spiritually lifeless, no beating heart. And not only that, he says, but who you were were those who were running after, not God and His will, but you were running after the things that God hates. You were running after the world and all of its sinful lusts. You were were indulging your flesh. You were children of the devil. And as a result of that, he says, you were cut off from God. You were alienated from His people, and you were under His judgment, His just, righteous condemnation. You were by nature, he says, children of wrath, God's wrath. That's the before image that that Paul gives to us, but that before is answered by verses 4 through 7 that come, and they're connected by these two wonderful words, perhaps some of the greatest words in the entire Bible, but God. Paul says, you were dead spiritually, 
dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The before, Paul says, is a deadly diagnosis. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You are incapable of doing anything but running after wickedness. But God stepped in. God intervened. And by His rich mercy, He made us alive while we were dead, Paul says. Notice, Paul does not say, uh, God uh, looked at our situation and said, you know, there's a little bit of a beating heart there in that sinner. There's a little bit of life there still, and I can just rekindle that and bring that person back to life. No, there was no life. God gave us new life in Jesus Christ. He made us alive while we were dead, and He saved us. There's that word, saved. Saved us by His grace, and now desires to show His mercy and His kindness to us by raising us up to an exalted state with His Son, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and reigns in heaven now. In a very short amount of verses, Paul explains the good news of what God has done. He's brought about a radical change in all of our lives if we profess Christ. He's accomplished the ultimate makeover, a drastic spiritual renovation. God has saved us. But that question still lingers. What has He saved us from? Now, I want to pinpoint the answer to that question here in Ephesians chapter 2. Because if we were to be asked that question, what has God saved you from? We might answer, well, He saved me from my sin. We say that a lot as Christians, and that's not wrong. God has saved us from our sin. He's, He's rescued us from the condemnation of our sin, the consequences of our sin. But it's not the full answer. We might say, He saved me from Satan. True enough, but Satan is ultimately a weak foe. He can only do as much as God allows him. He saved me from the world. That too is also true, but it's not the full picture. Think of it this way. What is the greatest danger that a sinner faces? And I submit to you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that the greatest danger that sinners face is God Himself. The greatest danger that sinners face is God Himself, a God who Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 6 is holy, holy, holy. A God who cannot stand in the presence of sin. We read in Psalm 5, evil may not dwell before you. The greatest danger sinners face is a God who must deal with sin. Just as a a righteous judge executes judgment in the case of a guilty person, a guilty 
defendant. You see, the greatest danger we face as sinners is the holy wrath of God against our sin. That's what Paul says here. He says in verse 4, verse 3 rather, he said, you were by nature children of wrath. You are under the wrathful thumb of God, and rightfully so because your sin is an offense to Him. Later on, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, what do we need? We need to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. And Paul makes very clear, that's who we were before Christ. We were children of wrath. And while it might seem counterintuitive, if we are going to know and experience and enjoy the after of our salvation through Jesus, we need to make much of the before of our sin. We need to linger on it for a while. We need to soak in it for a little while. Because if we make little of our sin, if we downplay the offense of our sin before a holy God, we can only make little of our Savior. It's only when we understand where we have come from that we can know and love and share the glory of the gospel. It's only then that that we can understand and rejoice that, that the God from whom we need to be saved is the very one who has stepped in to save us. That the very one who must judge sinners is the same one who graciously provides the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin in our place, that the very one who declared there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood has provided the Lamb. See, as we better understand the severity of our sin, what we are saved from, from the wrath of God, then we will be driven to better understand and bask in the glory of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Only then will we be able to articulate and talk about what it means that God has saved us from His wrath for His glory as a pure gift of His mercy, as as Paul interjects there in verse uh, verse 5, by grace you have been saved. When we know the truth of God's grace, what we are saved from, It cannot help but deepen our worship of God and drive us to make His salvation known to those who have never heard. I want to leave you as we finish this, this first point and go on to the second with a few practical pointers because maybe you haven't thought about this. Maybe you've wondered, how can I share the gospel with others that doesn't come easily to me? Well, the first thing we must remember to do is to take our sins seriously. We need to daily acknowledge our spiritual poverty and our total reliance upon Christ because only then can we gratefully, joyfully make Him known to others. We need to know for ourselves what it is to be rescued from death and brought to new life. The second thing is we need to learn how to articulate Christ's saving work to others by using the tools that God provides. I've I've often had people come up to me and say, you know, I just don't have the ability to speak about Jesus to others. I have a hard time articulating what the gospel is. I said, that's fine. 
but tell me, what are you good at? And they might say, well, I'm good at sports. I'm, I'm good at, um, at reading. I'm good at writing. I'm, I'm good at music. I'm good at my job. I said, well, how did you get good at that? And usually the answer is, well, I practice a lot. Well, the same thing is true for our ability to explain the gospel, to articulate it to others. We need to practice. We need to work at it. And we do that by using the tools that God has given to us to grow up in our ability to give a mature, thoughtful, biblical answer to our hope before a watching world. When we come faithfully every Sunday, even twice a Sunday, to sit under the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit uses that to make that gospel sink into our minds and hearts so that we too can share it and articulate it. We grow as we spend time uh, privately or with other Christians in God's Word, hiding that Word in our heart. We grow as we talk to other mature Christians, perhaps those who, who know, remember what it was like to be dead in their sins. We learn from them about the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. We can read good theology. There are so many good, accessible theology books out there written for the laity to instruct us, to help us grow in our ability to articulate the faith. We sing good songs, which give us words to use as we share the glorious work of Jesus with others. But finally, we need to cultivate gratitude for what Christ has done for us by preaching the gospel to ourselves. Every single day, we need to remind ourselves that we were sinners, we were dead in sin, but now we are alive in Christ, that God has cast all of our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, and now we can live for Him. Some practical ways that we can grow in our ability not only to understand what we've been saved from, but also, also to articulate that to others. But that's only part of the question. That's only part of the equation of our salvation as Paul describes it here in Ephesians chapter 2. There's another question that could be asked of us. Not only what are we saved from, we're saved from God, from His wrath, from His just judgment, but what are we saved for? What's the purpose of it all? What have we been saved And Paul ends this glorious section of Ephesians by declaring that every person that God saves, He also conscripts into His service to go about His mission to the world. We aren't simply saved from God's wrath and that we sit there basking in that truth. We're also saved to enter into something, to enter into the service of God and others. Look at me at verses 8 through 10 here of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I came across a an old cartoon, and it showed the pic- a picture of a woman uh, lying in her sick bed, obviously in misery, 
And in the sink, there are stacks of dirty dishes. There's a huge basket of clothes that needs to be ironed sitting nearby. There's two dirty kids fighting in the corner. And in the other corner, there's a cat licking up spilled milk. And a smiling woman stood in the doorway of the room, and the caption had her saying this, Well, Florence, if there's anything I can do to help, don't hesitate to let me know. Does that sound like your local church sometimes? Pastors and church staff are overwhelmed with work. Needy people are desperate for a visit. Sunday school and youth programs lack help. Visitors need a friendly welcome on Sunday morning. The missions program needs volunteers who can share Christ or give a cup of cold water in His name. The facilities need maintenance and improvements. Even those who are involved seem to be committed only when it's convenient for them. And yet people often say, if there's anything I can do to help, just let me know. The fact is, God does not save us so that we can sit idly by and just be. He doesn't save us so that we can just sit by and exist, comfortable in the knowledge that I'm saved and I know it, but I don't need to show it. I'm saved, but it doesn't matter what I do about it. I'm saved, but don't inconvenience me with service opportunities or anything that requires self-sacrifice. God saves you for a purpose. And that purpose is to work, is to serve. When Christ saves you, He makes you a living member of His body. And just as all the members of your body function to the benefit of the rest, they aren't just hanging out there existing without actually serving the rest of the body. So you and I, if we belong to the the living body of Jesus Christ, we must be functioning members of that body. If Christ has saved you from His wrath on account of your sin, then He has automatically called you. He has conscripted you into His service. He has drafted you into His service apart from your will to serve Him and to serve your neighbors. Notice what Paul says here in verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We read that and we wonder, is there an inconsistency there in what Paul says? Because he just finished saying that our salvation is not by works. Our salvation, our, our justification is not based on human effort. But Paul is helping us understand that salvation has, has a broader aspect to it. Our salvation embraces more than just the cross and the empty tomb. God isn't done with us after He saves us from Himself and declares us righteous in His sight for the sake of Jesus. After saving us, we become His special project. Like a rough slab of wood, 
that He's going to craft into something that's excellently beautiful in the hands of Jesus, the carpenter. We are His workmanship. And God intends to mold all of you, each of you, into humble servants who reflect your zeal for the lost and for the needy. And that was God's goal from the very start. He saved us. He recreated us in His Son for that very purpose, to do good works, to walk in His ways. Good works are the inevitable result, the necessary result of being new creatures in Jesus Christ. And that means that we need to avoid the thinking that we can separate believing the gospel from godly living. That's a, perhaps a problem that sometimes we, we deal with in our Reformed churches. But you can't have godly living and the gospel without one another. No sound doctrine without godly servant living. Because true faith in the Lord is never simply an intellectual exercise. True faith is never simply a mental agreement with what, what, what God's Word says. True faith is a living trust in Christ alone through His Word that bears fruit in the form of service to God and our neighbors. And so we have every reason to ask ourselves, as Scripture calls us to do quite often, if the fruit of my life is not pleasing to the Lord, if it's not beneficial to my neighbors, if it doesn't serve the church, is it godly fruit after all? Is it fruit that comes from a healthy tree that has the life of Christ and His Spirit running through it? Or is it rotten fruit molding in the soil of selfishness? and worldly indulgence. Friends, we've received the greatest gift of all of history. We've received Jesus' life for ours. We've been rescued from the wrath of God. We've been given an eternal inheritance of abundant life, and it's now our joy to know and to experience the fact that God is not done with us. He's perfecting us like a fine craftsman who examines every angle of His work to produce something that He can show off to the whole world. And He chooses to perfect us by softening our sharp edges through humble, servants, humble service and self-sacrifice, by giving up of ourselves for the good of others. And it's when we give ourselves to that calling that we truly gain the joy and the fulfillment that God prepares for those who live for Him. And so let's pray together that God will give us servant hearts, eager to serve others, eager to give evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives to His glory. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word as it helps us to understand the contours of the gospel, of the good news of what You have done for us through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You that first You have saved us from Your just wrath. You have rescued us from death and destruction and condemnation. You have made us alive with Christ and seated us with Him 
in position of authority and life and rule. Thank you that you have, you have met all of our needs in that way. But now you call us to something. We are not saved simply to sit idly by and do nothing, but we are saved to serve. We are saved unto good works. That was your purpose from the very beginning, to not only declare us to be righteous, but actually to make us perfect and conform us to the image of your dear Son. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to look for ways that we might glorify you and serve you and bless your church and bless one another, that we would seek to see the fruit of your Spirit at work in our lives, coming, coming out, being evident as the fruit of your work. Lord, forgive us when we do not think much of that call to obedience, but help us to submit ourselves to you in love and gratitude and obedience. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's respond to God's Word, uh, to His blessing, and sing number 426, number 426, how vast uh, the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. We are redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness. It is not for works that we have done these